Folks, over the course of the summer months uh, at our, this congregation, we have been uh, walking side by side with Jesus himself and looking at different scenes, miracles, teachings, happenings uh, that took place beside the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus spent the majority of two years of his life being the Messiah. Uh, here is a bird's eye picture of the Sea of Galilee uh, taken from you know, above. This is a summertime picture. You notice that all the ground around this freshwater uh, lake is kind of parched and brown. There's a few months of the year where it's green and lush. Summertime, it's dry and arid. Um, in biblical times, this was called the Sea of Galilee, even though it's a freshwater lake. The Romans named it after one of their Caesars. They called it the Sea of Tiberias. And the Old Testament name for this lake was Kinnereth, which is related to the old Hebrew word for a harp. And if you see it from above, from space like this, it is kind of the shape of a harp. I always wondered, how did somebody who has never been to space figure out that the shape of this lake is like a harp? And that's what they <laughs> named it three or 4,000 years ago. That is a small mystery compared to the mystery that we are going to encounter in the gospel itself today. Uh, on the north side of this lake, there is a city called Capernaum, right where the red marker is. This was Jesus' home base of operations for his ministry. It was the hometown of Simon Peter and James and John. Many of his disciples came from this exact city. In the passage that we're going to hear today from Matthew chapter 17, Jesus and his disciples are returning to Capernaum, to home base for one final time before Jesus makes the journey to Jerusalem to give his life and to rise from the dead. The four verses that you're about to hear, it's only four short verses, are surprising and confounding. There's going to be some words in yellow on the screen. They are the words of Simon Peter, if you as the church would read his part. This is what the word of God says. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked, Your teacher pays the two drachma temple tax, right? And then Peter said, Yes, of course. Then when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first one to speak. Now, Simon, what do you think? When a king levies taxes, who pays? His children or his subjects? And then Peter answered, his subjects. And Jesus said, then the children get off free, right? Yes. But so that we don't needlessly cause offense, go down to the lake, throw your hook and line in, and then pull out the first fish that bites, and then open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin Take this to the collectors of the temple tax. It will be enough for both of us. This is the word of the Lord for us today. <laughs> Honestly and amen. Surprising and confounding, right? Why is this in the Bible? I hope we have an answer to this 20 minutes from now. Sometimes reading the Gospels makes me uh, really weary in my spirit. And this is why. There is no end of trouble and hassle for Jesus. 
He has done amazing things around the Sea of Galilee for two solid years. And still, the religious folks, people like me, give him trouble and grief at every turn. You know the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? You've heard this? Never was this phrase more true than of Jesus himself. No good deed goes unpunished. It's like, say, for example, when out of the goodness of your heart, you take it upon yourself to wash the family dishes some Thursday evening. You know, they've been piling up since Tuesday evening. And you think, you know what? I'm going to wash up all these dishes. That's a good deed. And then as you're washing those dishes, suddenly, if by a miracle, more dishes start appearing. Family members start coming out of their bedrooms and out of the family room with plates and glasses and ice cream bowls and goblets that you haven't seen for five years. Even your dog is starting to nose his bowl across the kitchen tiles because you're washing the dishes. Does anyone say thank you? Sometimes, right? In a superficial way, like we all have this experience in some way, no good deed goes unpunished. In a much more serious way, with higher stakes, this is the truth of Jesus' life and ministry. He is literally saving people, body and soul, and the religious establishment, nice spiritual people, are always looking for ways to question him, undermine him, trip him up, humiliate him, and ultimately get rid of him. One of the ways Jesus' good deeds were punished were with the trick questions people kept lobbing at him. Jesus, here's a coin with Caesar's face on it. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you say, Jesus? Hey, Jesus, is there life after death or not? And if there is, what happens to married people after the resurrection? Tell us about that, Jesus. And in this situation, people aren't even content just to bother Jesus. They try to hassle him through his disciples. These collectors of the temple tax come to Simon Peter, and they ask him this kind of trick question. Now, in some other languages, there are tiny little words that imply that there's a right answer to the question. The Greek language, the language of the New Testament, is one of these languages. There are little words that imply whether the right answer is yes or no. And when these tricksters ask Simon Peter this question, the little word implies that they are expecting a firm, hard yes to their question. And the question is like, hey, you guys pay the temple tax to the Jerusalem temple, right? Like, that's the tone of your question. And I can, in reading this gospel account, kind of feel the wheels in Simon Peter's head spinning. He must be thinking something like, well, we kind of live here, but like, we've been serving the poor for two years. We've been out of town a lot of the time. Jesus has been healing the sick. We've been living off the land. We've been living off the kindness of generous people. He's thinking all of this in his head, and then he blurts out, but of course we're going to pay the temple tax. Where are they going to dig this money up from? Now, the temple tax was for all Jewish men 20 years or older. And 2,000 years ago, it was the amount of two drachmas. A drachma was roughly a day's work 
for a regular or a humble day worker. I'll call it 100 bucks. So every Jewish man, 20 years or older, on an annual basis, needed to cough up about $200. Okay? What did this money go for? Well, every day in Jerusalem, there were sacrifices at this point. There were a lot of animals. And who was going to pay for all those animals? Who was going to keep this litany of sacrifices going? The temple tax was going to help make that happen. So these tax collectors come, and they're like, you guys have an extra 500 bucks lying around for your annual temple tax? Now, if somebody came to you right now and asked you that question, you have an extra 500 bucks lying around just to, like, keep the lights on? I mean, most of us would be like, uh, uh, am I the only one? <laughs> I mean, you need to appreciate kind of the rudeness of this scene Jesus and his disciples have been giving their all for the benefit of everybody, and the tax man is still harassing them. Those of you who have been to Sunday school might remember this chapter, this reading comes out of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, as a human being, what was his job before he became one of Jesus' disciples? He was a tax man. Like, no wonder he was fascinated by this story, by the way, that... Most gospel stories appear in multiple gospels. This only happens in Matthew's gospel. It is only this weird story right here in Matthew chapter 17. The other thing we need to remember about Matthew is he is writing for early Jewish Christian converts. Like he is writing to the early church in the area of Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, and they are very concerned with this question. How can we be faithful Jews? How can we be God's people and also experience the eighth day, new life in Christ? How can we be faithful and how can we be free? This was a burning question for the early church in Jerusalem, Matthew's audience. And I think to address this question is why he includes this story. It demonstrates with spiritual eyes how to be a faithful person and a free person. By the way, these two qualities often seem like they're in tension with each other. Faithfulness or obedience and freedom. And for all of us sitting here 2,000 years later, God also desires in your life the twin virtues of faithfulness and freedom. Can you hear me loud and clear on this? Can you say these two words with me? Faithfulness and freedom. One more time. Faithfulness and freedom. Beautiful. God doesn't want faithfulness and boredom from you. God doesn't want faithfulness and rigidity and following the rules from you. He wants faithfulness and freedom. God doesn't want freedom and do whatever you want wildness from you. God doesn't want freedom and out of control disobedience from you. He wants faithfulness and freedom in your life. Okay, so after this opening verse, the scene changes. Peter walks away from the tax collectors, and he goes into his house. By the way, the gospel doesn't say it's Peter's house, but we do know he lives in Capernaum, all things being equal. He probably goes into his house, and Jesus asks him another question. Jesus' question is this. It's Jesus' question is getting to the heart of the trick question. Jesus' question is, now if a king 
Nobody had democracies or separation of church and state 2,000 years ago. So different political situation. If a king levies taxes on his people, who pays? The king's children or the subjects who are more distant from the king? And Peter says, of course. It's not the children of the king who pay the taxes. It's all the lowly subjects who pay the taxes. Why does Jesus ask this question? As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus went up to the temple of Jerusalem, and he called the temple in Jerusalem, quote, my father's house. Jesus knew when he was 12 that God Almighty, the Lord of the universe, the maker of all things, was his dad, was his father. And he made no bones saying, the temple to the one true God, that is my father's house. So if Jesus knowing that he is the only begotten son of God the Father, does Jesus need to pay the temple tax based on the question that he just asked? No, he's the the one true son of God. He's off the hook. Similarly, Jesus has welcomed and included all kinds of disciples in the last three years, men and women. He refers to them as brothers and sisters. Now, should Jesus' disciples... His brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters, I mean, we can call ourselves this too, of the son, should Jesus' disciples have to pay the temple tax then? You should be shaking your head, no. (laughs) Jesus is saying, we are all totally off the hook. We do not need to support this sacrificial system that's going on in Jerusalem any longer. Christians 2,000 years ago would read that question and be like, oh no, Is Jesus not actually a faithful Jew? How do we be faithful and free? And Jesus is saying, in fact, if you are with me, you are a daughter and son of God, and you are free indeed. But what are you free to do? If you have freedom in Christ, what are we free to do? Are you free to do whatever crosses your mind? Are you free to do whatever you prefer? Are you free to do just whatever you want to at any given moment? That is not a description of genuine freedom. That is a description of slavery to the whims and fancies of your own nature. That is no way to live. Our American instinct, if Jesus said to us, this to us, would be awesome. We'll not give any money to the temple tax, and we'll buy a better car. We'll get new kitchen tiles. Like, (laughs) we'll improve something, right? That would be our American attitude. Is that what Jesus does? No. Because of Jesus' freedom, he desires to do what is right. He desires to do what is respectful. He desires to do what is best for everybody concerned. Jesus desires with his freedom to do what is full of love. Jesus, in fact, pays the temple tax one more time in his life. In just a few weeks, he will go to Jerusalem and accomplish through his death on the cross the final and unique sacrifice that will make all other temple sacrifices superfluous and irrelevant for the rest of time. Do you hear me on that? Jesus is about to do something that makes all the other sacrifices no longer necessary. 
Jesus is about to tell the world that the temple that matters is not the temple built by human hands in Jerusalem. It's the temple that is his body. The temple that really matters is the body of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. And now today, where is the body of Christ that we can see and touch with our eyes and hands? With our hands and feet. Like, you're it. You are the body of Christ. We are the temple that really matters. And if you are part of the body of Christ, you, even as an individual believer, as an individual brick in the temple of God, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And even you, as a living stone, as an individual, are the temple of God. But this reality has not quite dawned yet. And out of faithfulness, Jesus pays the temple tax. So I'm going to reread the really weird part of this scene one more time. Jesus says, So that we don't needlessly cause offense, go down to the lake, throw out your hook and line, and then pull in the first fish that bites, open its mouth, and you'll find the equivalent of about 500 bucks. Take this to the collectors of the temple tax. It will be enough for both of us. Jesus is also free as the Son of God. He is not willing to needlessly cause offense. Please mark those words. So he arranges for really the most creative way to pay your taxes ever. Jesus had no cash. Jesus had no property. This is a challenging thought for city-dwelling suburbanites like us who often think God's blessing lies in cash and property. Right? Don't we think that? Did Jesus have cash? Did Jesus have property? Was Jesus more blessed than any human being there has ever been? Somebody say amen, please. The The suburbs need to hear amen to that. Even though he has meager physical resources... Jesus has a more extensive kingdom, more extensive than any president or politician or king or queen or madam or businessman or entrepreneur. Jesus' kingdom extends all the way down to the obedience of 15-inch fishes. That's a very extensive kingdom. (laughs) So, I really think Jesus' humor is at work here. This is a very large fishing lure, by the way. I pulled it out of my uh, dad's old tackle box. Uh, This is like a flasher if you're fishing for salmon in Lake Michigan, and it has a giant Northport nailer. So if you're a little kid, don't come hook yourself on this at the end. But Jesus' solution to this problem is to have Peter throw a hook and line into the water. By the way, in the New Testament, any other time fishing happens, it's always by casting nets off the side of a boat. This is the one time in the New Testament there's a person who, with a line and a hook, goes fishing. So if you love fishing, this is your biblical basis for it. Right? <laughs> there are three kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee, primarily. There are these tiny little kind of sardine-like fish the city of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, they were famous for netting, catching, and salting and pickling these little sardines. People ate them all over Israel. That was not the kind of fish that Peter caught. There are two bigger kinds of fish, a carpish kind of fish that's a little bigger, and something which to this day is sometimes known as St. Peter's fish. 
because likely this is the type of fish he caught. 15 to 18 inches. It has kind of a big mouth. Peter throws his line in the water. At least this is what Jesus tells him to do. And pulls out 500 bucks. (laughs) So this story has always bothered me a little bit. And here's why. All of Jesus' other miracles in the Bible are what I would term miracles of significance. There's a weight, a meaning, a spiritual depth to them that is readily apparent. And this miracle, it kind of seems to me on the surface like a miracle of convenience. Where's the 500 bucks? Go catch a fish. I'm humbly suggesting that is not why this story is in the Bible, okay? There are a set of books called the Apocrypha that did not make it into the Bible. There are stories, uh, any number of miracles of convenience in those. Little, little boy Jesus wants to show off to his friends so he makes clay pigeons fly away as real pigeons just so he can show off. I'm really glad that one didn't make it in the Bible. Like, that would not be helpful for the church. That's why it didn't make it in the Bible, There's another one about kids being scared of a snake and Jesus literally heals a kid of a snake bite and then explodes the snake. It's a really weird story. It's in the Apocrypha. It's not in the Bible because whether it happened or not, it's not spiritually helpful. Because this one is in the Bible, because it's in the word of God, I believe deep in my soul, like there has to be a significant reason why this is here for us. Here's what I think it is. The real point of this story is that Jesus, as the Son of God, refuses to offend in the small things. That's the first part of the meaning. It's only money. It's only taxes. Jesus has not demonstrated to the world that he is the living temple of God yet. Fine, it's just money. I'll pay the temple tax one more time. I will be a faithful Jew, faithful and free. Jesus refuses to offend in this small matter. He refuses to do that so that he can truly offend in the big, important, significant things in life. Do you hear me on that? Jesus refuses to offend in the small things, dollars and cents, so that he can truly offend his countrymen, and even us, people who love him 2,000 years later, so he can truly offend us with what counts. Now, we read four verses together. Immediately before these four verses, here's what the scripture says. Jesus said, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And Jesus' disciples were offended, filled with grief, sad. They could not accept it. Jesus will not offend in dollars and cents, but he is very willing to upset his disciples by telling them the heart of the gospel. I am going to die for the sins of the world, and I am going to be raised to life three days later by God the Father. Now, for some of us, this just seems like good news, right? Praise God. Like, that's our Savior. That is good news. 
But if I may speak like an average American for just a moment, let me tell you why 2,000 years later this is still the most offensive thing you will hear all week. Number one, Jesus needed to go to the cross because there is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with me. Like deep down in the pit of my soul, there is something crooked and failing and dying. This is an offensive thought to Americans like us. Like we basically think we're good people. But for the gospel to be true, we need to be healed of something deep, deep down. That truth should hook us and hurt us a little bit. Here's the next thing that's offensive. In order to be truly united to Christ, to live into the eighth day, like there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't fix the problem that's wrong with our souls ourselves. We need a power greater than us. I mean, as Americans, we believe, I mean, deep down that hard work and education can conquer every problem in the world. And that's true in a lot of situations, but in the most important thing in your life and in the most important thing in the universe, you cannot fix it. And I hope that hooks you in your soul. I hope the barb of that like hurts you a little bit. You can't do it yourself. And then, because we can't do it ourselves, it is the blood of Christ. It is not uh, someone coming in on a, a white horse. It's not somebody coming in to solve it with venture capital. I mean, it's somebody solving the fundamental problem that we all have with sacrifice and weakness. Could anything be more un-American? And once we are hooked into Christ, it's not your effort, you well-educated American. It's not your willpower, you purposeful, intentional person. It's not your own effort that even keeps you attached to Jesus. It is the fact that God has his arms wrapped around you. If he let us go, even the best of us a week later would be doing our own thing. At every turn, the healing, saving power of God is what does the job. It has very little to do with us except we cause the problem. And then we just present ourselves as open to what God might do on us. And then we cooperate as Jesus slowly reels us in. Year after year, whether you're three, whether you're 33, whether you're 93. It is God's good intention to hook you, my friends, to reel you in until you are safely in the boat, until you are safely in the Father's arms. There is no better place to be. Do you remember the, one of the first times Peter and Jesus crossed paths? There was also a fishing scene. And Jesus said to Peter, come on and follow me. You're not going to need to throw out nets and catch these carp to catch these uh, sardines anymore. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. 
I like to think every time Jesus and Peter were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter would have heard that, those reorienting words in the back of his head. And all these years later, Jesus is trying to do the same thing with us. To reel us in. And to teach us how to really fish. There's no better way to live. There's no better place to be. You want to be there? Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, sometimes your word is... Uh, so crystal clear. Other times it makes us scratch our heads. Uh, This gospel story is one of those instances, God. But we thank you that even uh, in this unusual scene, that the wisdom, the faithfulness, the freedom, the power of Christ is still evident. Lord, we want to walk in your footsteps. Help us this week to live faithfully and freely as disciples of yours. In Jesus' name, we commit ourselves into your care, God. And everybody said, amen. Isn't it great to have Pastor